Hello, and welcome everyone to the first episode of the People's Podcast. Um, today, uh, I am uh, very happy to be joined by a very special guest. It is none other than Chris Hedges, uh, the former uh, reporter for the New York Times, foreign correspondent, Middle East bureau chief, Balkans bureau chief, author of several best-selling books, writes for many publications, and host of the Emmy Award-winning show on RT America, on contact, um, it is uh, Chris. And so Chris, Chris, you were also the most watched speaker at the People's Convention that we hosted in August. It was um, it was fantastic to have you there and it's great to be catching up with you now. Great, thanks Nick. Well, uh, everyone, um, we've started the People's Podcast as a way of communicating to uh, more, uh, more people reaching uh, folks on more platforms. And so we are very happy to, to have this, uh, this episode as our first. Um, I'm very happy to be launching this uh, platform and to be doing so with such a distinguished uh, and I think incisive guest. I think Chris, you've emerged as one of the most, um, most incisive analysts of our time right now. Um, of the Biden administration, of the Democrats as a whole. We were talking a little bit before the show about how you've uh, been trying to uh, preach this message for a long time, uh, ever since 2000 and before. I've heard you say before that, um, that you feel that, uh, that the left should have left the Democratic Party, in fact, uh, in the 1990s um, when, uh, when Clinton betrayed the working class. And, uh, and, and finished what, uh, what George Bush Sr. could not and passed NAFTA. Um, and that it's been a story of betrayal from the Democrats um, ever since then, uh, but turned on the Green New Deal. Of course, so many of the things that, that you've talked about. Um, I wanted to ask you first, because we're amazingly nearing the end of, uh, of Bi Biden's one, first 100 days, Biden and Harris's first 100 days, and as I thought about this, uh, and as I thought about our conversation, I compared it to FDR's first 100 days um, in the wake of what was the Great Depression uh, at the time. And us now being in the midst of what is the greatest economic crisis and also the greatest public health crisis um, since the Great Depression and since the Spanish-American flu, um, the comparison between FDR and Biden, which incredibly some liberals were trying to draw, have been trying to draw, even some progressives have tried to draw, but it seems to me like there is no comparison whatsoever. I mean, FDR convened a special session of Congress. He coined the term 100, first 100 days, convened a special session of Congress, ran the national legislature like a New Deal printing press, passing dozens of bills, more than 70, including many major bills that put tens of millions of people to work, employed them, fed them, housed them. And now, as we're almost 80 days into the Biden administration's first uh, 100 days, I, I wanted to ask you, how would you compare them? How do you see the scale of the, of the response to these two crises um, and, and the Democratic Party of today compared to that of the 30s? There's no comparison because uh, what Biden has done uh, is 
refused to address the structural inequities. Uh, he, of course, campaigned on $15 an hour uh, and then walked away from it. He campaigned on checks for $2,000, which is ridiculous to mail a one-time check of $2,000 to uh, families that are uh, uh, overwhelmed by credit card debt, medical debt, uh, behind on their rent payments, uh, unemployed or underemployed. Uh, these are really token gestures. If you look at the sum, we don't know the final figure, but uh, 1.9 trillion for the COVID relief bill, the ARP, and then um, you know somewhere around three trillion. It's not determined yet for infrastructure spread out over several years. Almost all of this money is going into the hands of large corporations. Uh, in terms of the COVID relief bill, it's a windfall of uh, tens of billions of dollars for the for-profit pharmaceutical and insurance industry. Um, in terms of infrastructure projects, uh, again, that money will go either through uh, state uh, offices uh, to uh, large corporations that do infrastructure work. Uh, I mean, part of the reason that our infrastructure is in such distress is because it hasn't been maintained uh, with falling tax rates. Uh, even uh, this uh, uh, supposed increase in the tax rate uh, that Biden is proposing is, is just pushing us back uh, to where it was uh, roughly before Trump cut it. So uh, it's a very different from FDR, who, uh, as you said, you know, put 12 million people to work, created Social Security, um, uh, uh, lifted the ban on all sorts of labor unions, which empowered the working class. Um, so uh, I worry that the you know by the end of this year, all of that money is going to be gone. Unemployment benefits are extended until July. You have a tax credit for uh, children. Um, the moratorium uh, just gets extended. I think now it's extended till June, uh, but I think it's twenty percent of renters who have that figure right. Uh, can't meet their monthly payments. And so uh, so now they're waiting uh, on a knife's edge uh, to see whether it will extended, whether the moratorium will be extended beyond June. And if it won't, we're talking about millions, probably tens of millions of families being evicted from their homes. Um, so yes, it's extremely disappointing. And, and what's even more disappointing is the kind of gushing uh, embrace of uh, you know, this is somehow radical change on the part of the press. Well, you know, David, even David Brooks is writing columns, plotting all of this. Uh, but it doesn't structurally change anything. And by the end of the year, everybody's going to be back where they are. And that's very dangerous because it is exactly that disenfranchisement, that dislocation, uh, that abandonment of the working class that gave rise to the phenomena of Trump. Trump uh, was, didn't create it. Trump... Uh, uh, catered to it. It was there long before Trump arrived. Uh, I think you found it expressed through the Christian right. I wrote a book on the Christian right, American fascist, the Christian right in the war in America. I did not use the word fascist lightly, but all of this kind of magical thinking, white supremacy, uh, you know, rampant militarism, homophobia, all of that was embodied in the Christian right that Trump tapped into. And that's still there. Uh, in fact, it, it, it's going to be worse. And I fear that the legacy of the Biden administration is that it delivers to us a competent demagogue instead of an incompetent one. 
And you referenced the role of the media and the way that the media has been um, treating Biden. I've never in my life, Chris, uh, seen a level of propaganda around a Democratic president or a president in, in propping him up um, that I've seen around Biden. I mean, the effort to portray him as this kind of like, you know, uh, reforming, emerging after after decades of service, you know, to uh, almost a half a century of service to Wall Street, to the military industrial complex, to now portray him as this like born again, progressive figure, because he's raising corporate taxes from 21% to 28%, when Trump lowered it from 35%. So he's taking it half of the way back up. And I just read this morning from the New York Times to get their daily newsletter, you know, this kind of incredible portrayal, there's just no context. It's completely detached from that. It's treated as if Biden is raising corporate tax rates. Of course, the fact that he is putting children back in, in, in detention centers at the border is basically not discussed again, or if it is, it's just completely apologized for. I, recent, I just read today as well that Biden, who came in to office preaching Black Lives Matter, preaching uh, racial equality against white supremacy, systemic racism, that and who, who kind of cloaked himself in the Black Lives Matter movement and the movements of the summer, that he is actually arming police in the United States with a greater amount, degree, and value of weaponry, military weaponry, than even Trump was. And so I... I wonder just what would you say about that and, and the role of the media as a society descends in, in the way that it is uh, that it is today into authoritarianism? Well, I would say the media was pretty bad under Obama, too. Uh, I mean, nobody looked at Obama's policies. Uh, they looked at the fact that he was a person of color and young and charismatic and uh, kind of ignored what his policies were, which were uh, as bad or worse than Biden's. Uh, Obama's assault on civil liberties actually outdid those of George W. Bush. Um, he immediately, as soon as he took office, catered to Wall Street uh, instead of the victims uh, that uh, had suffered under fraud from these large financial firms and banks. Um, I mean, that's part of the bankruptcy of the media. It's all about image as opposed to substance. Um, so uh, I, I think that that... Um, failure on the part of the media to uh, report uh, accurately and honestly uh, has preceded the Biden administration, although you're perfectly right uh, that the reporting has been appalling. Um, uh, Biden was one of the primary architects uh, of uh, that Democratic decision led by Clinton to transform the Democratic Party into the Republican Party and essentially push the Republican Party so far to the right, it became insane. Um, uh, that was all Biden, the omnibus crime bill. He was a major author of the Patriot Act. Um, he, the omnibus crime bill uh, vastly expanded our prison population, militarized our police. Uh, Biden bragged about it at the time. Uh, the, I think he increased the number of federal crimes that merited the death penalty from a handful, one or two, to 50. He used to go, I think, 51. He used to walk around and bragging about it. Um, he, uh, under Clinton, you know, they were responsible for doubling and tripling sentences. So you have 40%, we have 25% of the world's prison population, or 4.4% of the world's population. 40% uh, of the people in our prison population 
have never been charged with physically harming another person. We have people serving life sentences for drugs. That was all Biden. Uh, and of course, the militarization of the police was all Biden. Um, and, and I think that's part of the problem with the liberal class is that they don't have any real contact or they don't have relationships with people who have suffered from these kinds of policies. I teach in a prison. Half of my students wouldn't be in that classroom, but for Biden and Clinton. And I don't know how, and, and you know, not only have they suffered horrendous injustice, uh, but so has their families, their children. Um, I don't know how you could walk out of a prison classroom and then turn around and vote for Biden or support Biden. Uh, but I think that there's, uh, you know, for so much of the liberal elite, the suffering and the suffering in this country is very real, uh, not only among communities of color, but among the white working class. And much of my family comes from the white working class in Maine. That's all real. Uh, and to write these people off either as super predators if they're black or as deplorables if they're white uh, just shows how bankrupt the liberal elite itself is. Um, and of course, that is, I think, uh, portrayed in the kind of uh, echo chamber that has built up around Biden, uh, as you correctly point out, uh, lauding what are very meager uh, you know, crumbs really tossed to uh, working men and women, while once again, uh, Wall Street and large corporations swallow staggering sums of money. Uh, uh, you know, this is this is just a playbook that we've seen going back to 2008. Um, uh, and that's what Biden's continued, but it's a very dangerous route. And it's one that's going to, I think, has potential political consequences that are very grave for the country. We completely agree um, because the pandemic, uh, it, it appears has been used um, by elites, by corporations, by both parties to accelerate um, the decline of the country, to accelerate massive levels of wealth inequality. I mean, the uh, uh, billionaires have taken more than a trillion dollars now from the working class at the same time that as you described earlier, there are tens of millions of people who will literally lose their homes in the United States the minute that these moratoriums are stopped being rolled over. That's literally, that they're, they're never gonna be able to pay that debt. I mean, in the United States, in other countries, it's amazing. In other countries, they're providing either basic incomes, they're provide, they're, they kept their employees on payroll, the government subsidized, companies to keep their employees on payroll. So they understood the basic equation that if you want people to survive and to continue being able to purchase in the economy, to be able to buy food, housing, basic needs, you need to keep, you need to maintain some kind of income. If you're gonna have, if you're gonna lock down the economy and you're gonna prevent them from going to their jobs, then you have to continue to provide for them in some way. And here in the United States, we're at a point where these two parties are so unbelievably corrupt and so unbelievably determined just to destroy kind of whatever remains of, of, of a middle class in this country that they instead didn't square that basic equation thinking somehow 80% of people before the pandemic are living uh, paycheck to paycheck, half the country can't afford a $500 emergency, and so what are we gonna do? What's gonna happen? We're gonna cut off everybody's you know, jobs, 50 million unemployment claims in the wake of the pandemic, which we've never recovered from, of course. All of this debt that people have picked up, not just from housing, but 
medical debt, also student debt, more than a trillion dollars in student debt. And that's never going to be paid. And that is just like a, a reinvention of a form of bondage against people. And so one of the things though, that that was hopeful kind of following this this election maybe a glimmer of hope was that and something else i wanted to ask you about was that there was the potential of possibly doing something about this now that hadn't existed before because as a result of the democrats utter corruption and incompetence they actually lost seats in the house of representatives and came down to a margin of about only four votes and so as Ilhan Omar pointed out back in December, it only takes five courageous progressives of which there are supposed to be a hundred in the CPC. There's a squad is supposed to be six. There's supposed plus many, many others like Pramila Jayapal, Rokana. And so, and yet, and so that, that margin is supposed to allow them to act as a block and exercise power as you're supposed to do with. So, just like Joe Manchin has his one vote and he can deny the 50 votes in the Senate. Bernie Sanders has one vote in the Senate. The squad has enough votes to deny a majority for the Democrats in the House. And yet it seems like opportunity after opportunity comes along where they have the ability to exercise power in a way to win substantive, meaningful structural changes to the conditions that the working class has in this country, the $15 minimum wage, Medicare for all with the force the vote push. And yet they don't seem to be taking any of these opportunities. In fact, I even took note of the fact that Pramila Jayapal and the progressives moved the introduction of Medicare for all in the house, which was just recently introduced they moved the introduction from February over to March after the introduction of the American Rescue Plan, after the stimulus package. Why would you do that as a progressive? I just, it's, it's incomprehensible. If you could gain so much leverage, you have the moderates on one hand demanding things like Joe Manchin say, we want unemployment to go from 400 to 300. We don't want the $15 minimum wage, cut that. We don't want a public option, cut that, which Biden ran on. We don't want to include student debt forgiveness, cut that. And so if the moderates in the party are allowed to make all this demands and yet the progressives have enough of a foothold because of such razor thin margins right now that they could on the other hand, make other demands, you know, rather than accepting that, rather than say accepting 400 to 300 for unemployment benefits, which is a lifeline for millions of people in this country, they could come out and demand instead, no, it's gonna go to 600. Or in fact, we're gonna get a $2,000 a month basic income and it's gonna be retroactive to the beginning of the pandemic when you gave literally trillions of dollars to Wall Street within two weeks of the beginnings of the lockdown, showing your priorities. And so what I wanted to ask you, Chris, is what is holding them back from acting on that power? Well, they don't wanna lose their political position, the same thing that holds Bernie Sanders back. And this has long characterized Bernie's relationship with the Democratic Party. Uh, remember, uh, Sanders was campaigning for Clinton in 96 after NAFTA, after the omnibus crime bill. Um, and 
the same with AOC and the squad. They And they're not wrong. I mean, Pelosi and Schumer and the Democratic Party establishment would crush them if they actually defied them. And so they're not going to defy them. They'll tweet garbage out and, uh, you know, make, uh, you know, appropriate kind of noises. Uh, but they're not going to do anything of substance because they, they are well aware that their political career would be over and they're not going to risk it. So they're careerists. And I, I guess they assume it, you know, it's better them than someone else, but it's made them utterly ineffectual uh, as a political force, as you correctly pointed out. Um, so you're right. They do have a certain amount of power um, at the moment, uh, but they won't use it because uh, they realize that uh, the Democratic Party machine would destroy them. That's why. That's why Bernie. That's why Bernie never takes on the Democrats. It's why Bernie. I mean, I was in Philadelphia. Cornell West and I were with several thousand homeless people outside the appropriately named Wells Fargo Center um, on the night that uh, Bernie endorsed um, Clinton, and hundreds of people walked out. His supporters walked out, and he should have walked out with them. He didn't. He, he missed his historical moment. And he didn't walk out. Well, in fact, uh, you know, Bernie let the Clinton campaign take over his Twitter account uh, to essentially send out messages to all his delegates and supporters to support Clinton. Um, and because he, he knew that uh, uh, he'd lose his Senate seat, and he'd, be, he'd be tossed in the political wilderness like uh, Ralph Nader or go all the way back to George McGovern, who also defied the Democratic Party establishment. And after the Democratic Party elite uh, allied itself with the Republican Party elite to destroy him in the presidential race, they took away his Senate seat. They, they, uh, and he was, he was gone. So they know, they know, you know, very, very well the the price they would pay for that kind of defiance. They don't want to pay it, and that's the problem. Uh, I, I agree. Um... It is, it is the party structure, I believe, that, uh, that, that holds them back and keeps them from insisting on any kind of change uh, that, that they run on. It, it certainly seems like they are more afraid of the party and the party's ability to, um, um, to deny them uh, re-election uh, than they are accountable to the movement. Um, and that's a big problem, and I think it's a big problem as well um, when it comes to the organizations that have kind of sprung up to support progressive Democrats, particularly in the wake of 2016. And so I was the national political outreach coordinator on the Bernie 2016 campaign. Um, I helped start our revolution after that as its electoral manager. And I saw after the Bernie 2016 campaign, the way, the way that Bernie inspired millions of people to try to go into the Democratic Party to try to change it, inspired the kind of rise of a new generation of progressive organizations, our revolution, framing Congress, Justice Democrats, DSA, which grew tremendously in the wake of 2016. But it seems that these organizations ha are having a fundamental problem of attempting, when it comes to actually keeping these progressives that they've elected, even the few, I mean, to begin with, the Democratic Party has just blocked the vast majority of people that those organizations have attempted to run. And so there's still only kind of a small uh, a couple handful of progressives in Congress, you know, and that's probably a generous interpretation. But of the ones that are, of the ones that are there, 
I think there's an even deeper problem that has become apparent that some of these organizations don't want to deal with and that some of some progressive Democrats don't want to deal with. And that is the question of accountability. How do you actually hold the members of Congress who you have elected, the politicians who you have elected to the Democratic Party accountable? Because it's become clear that once they get there, there is a machinery within the Democratic Party that begins to act on them. There are all kinds of different forms that the party has levers of control, whether it's threats of primaries, uh, massive pressure to support uh, blue dog Democratic incumbents um, and, and help you know protect their seats to protect majorities in the legislature. We recently saw AOC, for example, she recently gave um, thousands of dollars to establishment Democrats who are actually fighting against Medicare for all. Only two years after being there and saying that these are the exact same people who we were gonna primary in mass, she's now contributing to their campaigns to help shore up their positions, committee assignments, which we've seen Pelosi and the corporate Democrats actually take away from AOC and take away from other progressives as a way of, of punishing them and disciplining them. And so, you know, I kind of want to ask you about that dynamic, that when it comes to these organizations, it doesn't seem to be a problem that they had anticipated, but I, I, I want to see what you think about that. Well, it, it's, it really comes down to whether the Democratic Party is a reformable organization, number one, or whether it's even at its core democratic, and it's neither. And, and this has just been a misread on the part of progressives. But of course, that misread is perpetrated uh, by the Democratic Party establishment, uh, you know, whether they allow Kucinich to run or uh, Bernie or anyone else. Uh, the idea is to uh, give expression to uh, those kinds of issues. But then in the end, once the presidential nominee is selected or anointed, as Biden was, to corral uh the progressive wing of the democratic party or progressives back into the democratic party fold and of course it works every time because as the political situation devolves the monstrosities that are coughed up uh you know whether it's bush or trump uh become worse and worse and believe me this next time around is going to be much worse than trump um so uh it, it's diminishing returns uh, and, uh, um, you know, these, these figures are careerists in the end. They, they, AOC and Bernie and all the rest of them, um, they're not temperamentally or morally fit to lead this fight, uh, which is a fight against the ruling elites, which includes the Democratic Party establishment itself. Um, and uh, that is not going to come from within. Right. One of the points that we've made, Chris, that I want to get your take on is that, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, there's the, the questions about uh, the progressives who are in the Democratic Party, particularly AOC, with some of the recent things she's done. Like, for example, she, the, the first interview that she gave with DSA, their publication, Democratic Left, um, she, uh, she was asked about uh, critic, critics of Biden, the left critics of Biden, um, you know, Bernie supporting critics of Biden. And her answer was that those individuals are privileged and that they're making their commentary in bad faith. And that was that was kind of astonishing. Um, and so I wonder, uh, 
the the analysis that we've had is not so much on the individual level, um, but rather on the systemic level that it doesn't matter who you send into the Democratic Party. And this seems to be something that's missing from the progressive movement and the left. It's still a lesson that we need to learn to a large degree. It's not a question of sending individuals with more integrity into the Democratic Party. It is just kind of a basic acceptance of the sociology of what happens to an individual when they're sent into that party and the systemic forces that act on them. And so the way that we view it is less kind of on an individual level uh, stating that, you know, oh, oh, we just sent the wrong people in. If we send another batch of people in, you know, they'll be better and they'll, they'll have more integrity. And, you know, it's going to be they're They're going to make all the right decisions. They're going to challenge Pelosi. They're going to uh, uh, stick up for the $15 minimum wage. You know, they're going to demand even more. Um, that's not the view that we have. And and I wonder if you if you think that's correct to see to see the party and at through that systemic lens. Yeah, I mean, they're powerless within the organization and they can either play the game, which they're doing, and uh, retain their political, their elected position. Uh, and if they don't play the game, they're finished, like Cynthia McKinney and a few others. Uh, you know, Ralph back in 2000, uh, and nobody understands corporate power and, and how it has seized all of the mechanisms of control better than Ralph Nader, nor has, in my mind, anyone been fighting corporate power with more integrity and success than Ralph Nader. And, and Ralph said, uh, at this point, the only mechanism we have left is to pull 5, 10, 15 million people out of the Democratic Party into a third party movement to create pressure on the Democratic Party to respond. Politics is a game of fear. Uh, and uh, and you know the the public relations apparatus uh, is quite sophisticated. Uh, all sorts of progressives say all the right things, and then every election cycle get completely weak kneed uh, and uh, fall down and tell you to vote for Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden or whoever. Uh, and, uh, and and so you know the swamp just gets. Uh, bigger and wider and deeper. Um, you know, we have to step out. And of course, uh, that initial uh, effort is very lonely. I mean, Ralph never thought he would win. He knew he wouldn't win. That was never the purpose. The purpose was to begin to create a, bl a voting block that would frighten the Democratic Party and, and the ruling elites into responding. Um, and of course, that's why they turned Ralph into a pariah. And I'm glad you bring that up because, uh, of course, uh, that, you know, you, you, you point out that success of building an independent party comes in multiple different fashions, that there's multiple different forms of success of, of for example, what we're doing is building the People's Party, that um, by doing that, we can either frighten the Democrats and the elite into making concessions or we can outright replace them if they won't change, you know, or we can, I would say, add, I would add to that, um, discover that, uh, that in this country, electoral politics is so incredibly manipulated and controlled that it isn't even an avenue for change. And I think that that is a large part of the importance of the work that we're doing at the Movement for a People's Party and building the People's Party we're now, uh, we've registered in uh, five different states, in California, in Maine, in Colorado, in Ohio, in Oregon, 
Um, and we are building, uh, we're building that um, right now. And we're preparing to run uh, candidates, about a dozen candidates for Congress, perhaps a candidate or two for Senate, and challenge these establishment Democrats and Republicans. And actually, it, I think it's no coincidence in the now that we have begun to talk more publicly about, you know, we're, we're not just, uh, you know, we're not just doing this for show. We are actually planning challenges now and logistically beginning to lay that out. I think that the Democrats, I think it's no coincidence that, that, that we've seen a reaction from the Democratic Party that is beginning to attempt to attack our efforts to get ballot access. And so that is uh, in Nevada, for example, um, just a week ago, uh, Senate, uh, State Senator Roberta Lang uh, introduced a measure that would double uh, the number of signatures required to get ballot access in Nevada. There's efforts like this happening in about four or five different states. Nationally, within HR1, the Democrats, who are of course the champions of that, have stuck in measures, have slipped in measures that would create, put even more money into politics and empower the DNC and the RNC with, for example, lift the cap that the DNC and the RNC can give to a presidential candidate from 5,000 to $100 million and other measures to try to centralize power in their national committees and also to try to block independent parties. And so I think it's no coincidence that that's happened. In fact, the top ballot access expert in the country, Richard Winger, has contacted us and he's advised us on ballot access and said that, yes, I believe that you are responsible for initiating this latest spate of voter suppression. And that's really what it is. And that's what I find most incredible and most revealing about the Democratic Party. That at the same time that the Democratic Party has been throwing its hands up in righteous indignation over Republican voter suppression bills in Georgia and Texas, restricting the voting rights of people of color, the poor, they have been engaging in their own voter suppression campaign against us the same party that claims to believe in enfranchisement for people of color and the poor. And I find that so revealing about the Democratic Party's principles at a core that in fact, they are no more guided and led by principle when it comes to uh, uh, voter enfranchisement than the Republicans. It's just a pure calculation of what is in the benefit of their party. That's it. Yeah, well, that's not new. I mean, voter suppression has dogged the Green Party and Ralph uh, since 2000 and probably before. Uh, the the two parties uh, collaborated to take control of the debate commission because they didn't want to put it, Ralph initially and we'll put a Ralph on the uh, on the debate stage. And I understand who'd want to have to debate Ralph Nader. Uh, they uh, challenged. Uh, all of the, or most, I think all of Ralph's uh, voter lists, even though they were legitimate, just to run up his legal costs. I think by the end, he had over a million dollars in legal costs. Uh, because uh, money determines access, Ralph could pull 10,000 people in Madison Square Garden, which he did. Uh, people actually, he didn't know if he was going to be able to afford the rent. He just charged people at the door. I think it was $5 or something. But he, he filled it and he, and they paid for it. Uh, but $10,000 is nothing when you have no access to national media uh, and the potential to reach billions of people. So there are all sorts of mechanisms that both parties use uh, to 
uh, thwart third party candidates or even progressives within the Democratic Party. So, for instance, with Dennis Kucinich, if you go back and look at that campaign during the primary, they kept changing the rules to make sure Dennis wouldn't be part of the uh, debates the, uh, in the Democratic primaries. Uh, and most of those debates were actually sponsored because the debates were sponsored by corporations, were sponsored by the for-profit healthcare industry. Uh, and Dennis was for single payer and they just, and they succeeded. He was never going to have a voice. I mean, even in New Hampshire, when he qualified under their own rules, because people dropped out, they locked him out of the building. Uh, so, uh, there are a series of mechanisms that the, the both parties, including the democratic party have set up, uh, to make it impossible to hear the voices, especially on, for instance, uh, on uh, universal health care, single payer, uh, because the system we have is utterly irrational. It's the most expensive, least efficient uh, system, uh, although it makes, you know, staggering uh, profits. I mean, one of the things about uh, the uh, ARP is that, you know, we're going to hand billions of dollars to the insurance and pharmaceutical corporations, tens of billions, and they're already making record profits. Uh, you know, again, it's this, the whole pandemic, I think, is a window into how uh, our misery uh, is, uh, uh, is accompanied by uh, the excesses of the 1%. I mean, 84% of stocks in America are held by just 10% of the population. And uh, they, you know, they're borrowing all sorts of money at virtually 0% interest. Uh, they're not investing it. They're giving themselves lavish bonuses and the stock prices by raising the stock. Of course, compensation is tied uh, to stock. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, the, the system now at this point, politically, legally, the media, of course, is controlled uh, by corporate entities. The, the whole system is just geared towards this kleptocracy on the part of uh, the billionaire class, uh, and, and and this is just one piece of it. The, the the electoral system is just one piece of it. Right. And uh, Chris, you talk often about um, what you believe could happen or or will happen um, as a reaction to um, full democratic party rule. Um, and uh, I I completely agree with you that the kind of uh, reaction is going to be a kind of backlash, the kind of backlash that we saw in 2016, except far more intense. Um, because what I see in this country is a people who are running around um, seeking some kind like in a burning building, trapped in a burning building by these two corporate parties, by this corporate elite. And they are running trying door after door after door to get out of this. And the more they exhaust the doors that appear to be in the mainstream or that appear to be somewhat in the mainstream, you know, try Obama. Okay, Obama said a lot of the right things, but what happened? You know, he didn't, he let the bankers off. He did, you know, he, he, he governed as a conservative. And so then Trump is this counter reaction to that. Well, Biden, the person you know who we have now, our president now, is was 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 picked by Obama 
as his running mate, as a signal to Wall Street of the administration's allegiance. And he's governing at a time in which working people are far worse off than they were when Obama took office even uh, as a result of the, 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 this recession following the pandemic and of years of, of stagnant wages uh, right through Obama's term. And so it seems like the backlash is going to be even worse than it, it's going to make Obama to Trump look tame. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think that we'll, we're going to get, instead of a goofy, you know, narcissistic uh, megalomaniac, uh, you know, who has the attention span of a three-year-old, uh, we're going to get somebody who's, who's competent. So when they uh, attempt to orchestrate a coup d'etat, which Trump clearly wanted to do, he just didn't have the organizational ability to do it, it's going to work. Uh, and we're already seeing that in Georgia, by the way. Uh, so I don't know who it's going to be. Mike Pompeo wants to run, Tom Cotton, and maybe somebody we don't know. Uh, but but um, that's where we're headed. And it is, of course, the failure on the part of the ruling elites and the ARP and the infrastructure bill are just you know one more example of that. The failure to address the systemic issues uh, that have thrown half the country into poverty or near poverty and misery and extinguished all hope and devastated communities and um, uh, you know, there's going to be a terrible, terrible price to pay for this. Uh, Biden was picked. Look, I mean, the, the ruling elites uh, made it very clear. Lloyd Blankfein, uh, the former CEO of Goldman Sachs, said that if Bernie Sanders was the nominee, he was going to vote for Trump. That was never going to happen. Uh, but the, the hierarchy or the donor class of the Democratic Party was quite public about the fact that they would vote for Trump if Sanders or even Warren, but in particular Sanders was the nominee. Uh, and so this whole mantra of the least worst, that's only for you and me and not for them. They didn't like Trump. Uh, he was an embarrassment to the empire. Uh, and they wanted Biden because he would bring back the kind of decorum and gravitas uh, and change nothing um, in essence, uh, which is, of course, what has happened. But that doesn't address the deep uh, malaise and anime and dislocation and rage, legitimate rage, I would argue, that has enveloped most of the country. Uh, and by not addressing that, especially at a time of such economic distress, then uh, the blowback is, I'm, I think it's going to be very frightening. It's probably going to come wrapped in a kind of Christian fascism. Remember, Trump had no ideology, uh, but the Christian right filled that ideological void. That was Pence, Pompeo, Betsy DeVos, Ben Carson, and others. Uh, and um, I think we're going to see the Christian right, uh, which I look at it as heretical. I graduated from seminary. I come out of the church. My father was a minister. I'm not unchurched. I look at this as a heretical movement that has uh, sacralized the worst elements of white supremacy and uh, corporate capitalism and American imperialism much in the same way the so-called German Christian church did under the Nazis. Um, and uh, uh, so you have a kind of ideological formation and someone will probably rise out of that uh, ideological uh, crypto-fascist movement. I mean, that's what I suspect. And I wonder if you could talk more about what you think 
um, that would look like and what kinds of changes such a person would usher in into the country and in, into the empire. Well, any pretense of democracy would be gone. Um, I mean, one of the things I find frightening is that Biden is just ruling by decree. Um, this was tried, by the way, in the dysfunctional Weimar government lead up to the Nazis. So Ebert and the Social Democrats, when they had a kind of negative majority in the Reichstag between the communists and the fascists, so they just ruled by decree. But it sent a kind of precedent. Uh, and uh, it means that if you get uh, uh, a figure like Trump or Pompeo or someone else in the office, just instantly everything is overturned because the legislative system doesn't work. That's a very dangerous way to govern. Um, and so all of these executive orders, which are really an, a misuse of executive power, uh, everything can be instantly uh, reversed and will be. Um, so I expect, uh, uh, you know, all of the kinds of uh, uh, assaults against uh, democratic institutions to be ratcheted up. Uh, certainly we have seen uh, Silicon Valley work as a censor on behalf of the Democratic Party. They've removed, of course, Trump from social media. They locked the New York Post out of its own Twitter account when it published uh, the information that was found on Hunter Biden's discarded laptop. Um, but uh, you'll get a raw kind of censorship, a raw kind of abuse of uh, military power, uh, a complete bypassing of the judiciary, uh, and, a, and a real war against um, all forms of dissent. But let's be clear, the Democratic Party uh, is also making a war against people like myself who are critics of imperialism and critics of uh, neoliberalism, because neoliberalism as an ideology has no credibility on, across the political spectrum. And so critics are more dangerous and therefore pushed further and further to the sidelines. So we see, you know, people like Matt Taibbi or Glenn Greenwald, who write on Substack, you know, we hear calls now for Substack to be shut down. Um, I've already been hit with all sorts of algorithms uh, that steer people away from my content. That's not conjecture. Uh, when I was at Truthdig before it was shut down, uh, we all demanded a union, went on strike, and we were all fired. Um, but uh, the impression, so if you had gone into Google and typed in imperialism, and I'd written a column on imperialism recently, would come up with anything else that was recent about that topic. Um, so the referrals by impressions over a 12-month period dropped from over 700,000 to below 200,000, and they're probably less than that now. Uh, so there's a really active campaign on the Democratic Party right as we speak uh, to essentially silence its critics, uh, particularly on the left. Uh, remember, WikiLeaks was the first real victim of this. It wasn't Trump who was removed from social media first. It was Julian Assange's PayPal account. Mm -hmm. his, all his credit cards were frozen. You couldn't donate. They uh, you got electronic interference when you tried to uh, attend a WikiLeaks event. Uh, so uh, I see all of these dystopian measures, which are already with us, just becoming more and more pronounced, and the state becoming uh, essentially uh, more nakedly authoritarian. There was a, a comment recently that struck me just as that. Um, Kamala Harris uh, recently made a comment about how we 
yeah, we um, have fought wars for oil. We fought wars for oil, and, that, and in the future, we'll be fighting wars for water. And it, it, it struck me because I thought, wait a minute, you know, so now we're openly admitting that we fought those wars for oil, you know, for decades ago. I remember Trump did that, and, you know, and he was chastised by the, by the liberal media for doing that. When he did it, you're not supposed to say that. You know, that's the quiet part. You're not supposed to say it out loud. And, um, and, and now it's just, it was, it was accepted. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that the, I mean, the, one of the results of the Trump administration is that it kind of removed the mask and exposed the ugliness of the American empire. Uh, and, and, and really that's how you have to look at Biden. Biden is an attempt, a desperate attempt on the part of the ruling elites to put the mask back on. I don't think it's going to work. I mean, Biden comes back and said, you know, we're back, you know, we're back to lead the world or sit at the head of the table, I think was his ex exact expression. Uh, but the fact is the world isn't waiting for us. So, you know, we're becoming as much of a pariah nation as Israel. Uh, um, I'm on all sorts of levels. We can't handle the COVID crisis. Um, the, the pandemic, I think, has exposed the, the internal rot and decay within the country, the mass shootings that are at a, a, you know, also an epidemic kind of level. Um, uh, you know, there's just so much that's so publicly wrong with this country throughout the world. Uh, and, and perhaps the people who see it least are the, are the Americans who live in the midst of it. But the rest of the world sees it. The rest of the world is horrified. Yeah. Um, and uh, and they often, they pay the price, of course. Uh, they pay a price just as we do for, for what happens in this country. Uh, well, I wanted to ask you, Chris, kind of as a, as a closing question, um, what, what impact do you think that a new party can have, uh, that the efforts that we're, uh, that, that we're working on can have you know, and, and in what ways can it succeed? Um, in what ways um, do you think that, uh, do you think that we should proceed about it? In what ways do you think that, what does a new party have to do um, to be successful? Well, uh, you know, I was intimately involved with all of the mechanisms used to shut down Ralph. I mean, as soon as Ralph posed a legitimate threat after 2000 of the Democratic Party, uh, the public vilification and character assassination was intense. I mean, even now progressives will, you know, say to you, well, you know, he gave us Bush, which is ridiculous. Uh, I mean, just factually incorrect. Right. It stopped the counting after two counties, sent it to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court overturning all legal precedent uh, appointed Bush president by judicial fiat and nothing to do with Ralph. Um, uh, you know, the campaign run by Al Gore was so tepid, he couldn't even carry his home state of Tennessee. So, uh, but, but that, that, you know, relentless, uh, kind of mantra that is, uh, trumpeted throughout the corporate media is very effective. Um, I just don't think there's any other route. What is our chances of success? Well, probably not very high. Uh, but I just don't see, uh, any other way. And I think that, that, the tragedy is that when the working class was betrayed, as you mentioned at the beginning, by the Democratic Party, those of us who care about working men and women didn't challenge the Democratic Party establishment, but exposed ourselves as standing for nothing. Uh, and, and that really deeply destroyed the liberal and progressive wing of the Democratic Party and the liberal progressive movement because it proved that 
um, we, we were spineless and worthless. Um, and uh, that if we had stood fiercely against the Democratic Party uh, establishment and stood with uh, working men and women, uh, we wouldn't be where we are today. But unfortunately, we didn't do that. So I think, you know, if, if the left and the liberal elites and progressives don't take a firm stance on behalf of working men and women, uh, then those working men and women, in particular, the white working class, which of course is the majority, will show their uh, displeasure with uh, the ruling class by uh, embracing a kind of crypto fascism. Uh, and, uh, you know, we just have lost that kind of moral imperative that there are things you can't do and things you can't say. Um, you know, the Democratic Party can say or do anything. And, and uh, we follow along like with a ring through our nose and, and now we're going to pay for it. So I think it's very important that we build third party movements and we challenge and we stand fast for these moral imperatives. Uh, but having, I was Ralph's speechwriter, having worked with Ralph, I also know how vicious the establishment is, especially if they perceive you as a threat. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's only gonna ramp up as, uh, as we are getting into running candidates and it's gonna become less abstract to them. Uh, we are, we're already seeing it with those challenges at the national and the state levels attempt to uh, make our ballot access more difficult. And so absolutely, I think those attacks are gonna ramp up when, they, when there are individual uh, Democrats and Republicans who are facing uh, losing their seat um, to a major new party that is, that is corporate free uh, or our, our movement to build one. Well, you, so, can, you can see it with what they're doing with Shama Sawa now. Yes. The, the socialist city councilwoman. I mean, they, uh, I mean, there's a huge campaign right now against her um, because she has been effective on a local level. Uh, and um, I mean, I think we've got to get out there and uh, fight this battle. Um, I think it's important, but I think we can't be naive about how uh, ruthless uh, the ruling elites will be uh, the moment we get some traction. Right. Well, Chris, on that note, <laughs> on that positive note, <laughs> uplifting note, um, it's great to talk to you. It's, uh, it's great to have, I think, your, your wisdom and your guidance uh, as a movement and your experience having seen the devolution um, in, in other countries. You, you speak with that, and, um, and, and I think that's, that's very valuable. Um, for our movement to, to hear that and to know that, um, what exactly we're facing. And so Chris, I wanna thank you for joining right, us thanks. for this episode and uh, for the inaugural episode and um, I'll talk to you soon. Great, Nick, thanks. All right, everyone, thanks for joining us. Have a great day.